We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. What is going on? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. Uh, today is Sunday, January 25th, 2015, and the world is going going to end tomorrow. Anyway, I'm Joe Quinn. I love Bar. And my co-host, <laughs> well, my co-host are Neil Bradley. Baby, baby. My co-hosts are Neil Bradley and Pierre Escobar. Hello. Hey, hello, everyone. So this week, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened. Um, did you all notice? What? Blank. Whistling. The sound of wind. Is that a tumbleweed just blew through here? <laughs> What's going on? Nobody noticed anything. Anyway, if you notice something that happened this week or this year or last year or whenever, you can call in, if you like, and call in directly on Skype. Uh, by using the little Skype button near the player there on our Blocked Out Radio page, or you can call in on your phone or again with Skype, uh, and the guest calling number is displayed there as well at 718-508-9499. So, there's a party going on in Greece. There's a party going on in Greece for no good reason whatsoever. Ah, so, no I hope. don't know. It's good fun, no? Well, I guess it's... Well, it's, it's, it's always it's a double-edged sword, you know, because... Personally, get my hope raised as soon as there is a potential good leader that might get elected, and often it ends up the same. Either the good leader is not a good leader, or it doesn't get elected, or the election gets cancelled, so or there is a coup d'état, or there is a terrorist attack, or it gets bribed. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So what you're saying is you don't learn from your experiences? No, I mean, I, I'm yes, getting into schizophrenic mode. My intellectual <laughs> self knows that again and again history repeats for the worse. And there's another part in myself, the hopeful one, let's call it this way, that can't help hoping for a better world. And it never happened, so it should by now it should have understood that uh, no, that's not the way it works. Yeah. The closet communist in me is going Victory But then the little voice says uh, hold on a minute. What was the statement that the Rise of Party leader just said? Greece has voted for hope. Hope is one. The thing is, the hope thing, you know, we all know from the Obama hope thing that it's not a safe bet to oh, yeah? invest too much in it. At least, I think at the very least, this will give the Eurocrats and the Troika something to think about. Yeah, but at the same time, for me, rained on the parade and kind of killed my hope is that I saw those graphs showing the level of exposition of uh, banks to uh, Greek debt, and uh, particularly Deutsche Bank and Societe Generale. And over the last weeks, the exposition almost vanished. So they dumped all the Greek denominated debts to other players, probably some public players or individuals. And uh, at the same time, European authorities created a, a European Solidarity Fund with taxpayers' money. So if there's a collapse in Greece, banks are fine. They won't have to pay for it. They won't be brought down 
Yeah, it's it's not about economics or finance. It, it rarely is. The Eurozone is a political instrument, first and foremost. It isn't about the health of economy. And I, I agree. What I mean is, if the banks, the uh, European Union, have made this move, it seems that they are ready. Because right after the creation of this fund, that's when Merkel made this statement where she said, basically, that she was willing to consider dropping Greece from Europe. And until then, it had been a no-no for years. So what I mean is, in those high spheres, as reflected by those financial moves, they seem to have anticipated the move. Mm. So It's on the table, you're suggesting. Yes, it kind of rains on the parade. It's not anymore this people revolution and this major blow to the European institution and Europe that will start collapsing pieces and while the elites are caught off guard and the people triumph. You see what I mean? Yeah. They seem to be ready. And can, can, I just, can we just sketch the, the, the basic situation? So, yeah, you probably heard that it looks like Syriza, which is far left party in Greece, is going to win an outright majority and therefore form a new government. Um, it, it'll give Greece its youngest prime minister, probably, in some 200 years. Uh, he's only 40 years old, Alex Tsipras, Alexis Tsipras. Um, it, it, it remains to be seen. You see, first and foremost, his mandate is not, I'm going to take Greece out of the Eurozone or the EU. It's that I'm going to negotiate. Renegotiate the loan conditions. Yeah. Three hundred and seventeen billion euros of debt. Mm-hmm. Only ten percent of that stems from Greece's spending on Greek government spending. The other ninety percent is bad bankster deals, bad debts from Greek banksters. You can see where where they're coming from. This is why he got voted into power. The people are saying, "Well, it's not our debt." Um. He's not, you know, holding up any threats to, to leave the EU. This is all what the discussion is about in the media. Oh, if he, even if he just, you know, negotiates a hard line that says either we massively shrink the size of the debt we have to pay and the terms we have to pay it back and or we leave the euro. He's not actually making that threat. It's just being put out there as a, as a suggestion. And you see the hypocrisy here. Already, when private banks are in jeopardy because their own crazy investment strategies, they are bailed out with public money, taxpayers' money. When a public institution, a country, is in financial uh, in financial situation, here the financial community, the political bodies say no, no, no bailout, no cancelling of the debt. You have to pay everything according to the terms that were defined previously. No way negotiation. No leeway for you. People, and actually it's not the country per se, it's the country, it's mainly the people. Privatization, reducing the, the pensions, major massive unemployment, reducing wages, it's a destruction of uh, people's uh, social condition. Yeah, well now they're... Um we're talking about the the Syriza party. This is a leftist kind of um, anti-austerity party, winning 150 seats, one uh, one seat short 
of an outright majority, meaning that if they had 151, they could form a government all by themselves. So um, that's very close. Yeah, very close. Suspiciously close. <clears throat> but of course, I think I would say that um, one of the kind of smaller parties, you can imagine that one of them right. might be kind of aligned. All they would have to do, one person from one of the parties that could um, defect and then they would have 151 seats and then they could form a party. I think at that point, you could probably wrangle something, pay somebody off or something to get one more seat to have an outright majority. But of course, there's plenty of other small parties probably that are somewhat aligned that they could form a coalition with. Not well, there's a party that's left of them. Right. There's a Greek communist party. So, I, so pretty much I think this anti-austerity party is going to form effectively, at least in terms of the, the politics, is going to form a, a government all by themselves. So, um, but yeah, I don't have much uh, much faith in that kind of uh, process at this point. You know, of anything really radical happening to Greece. I mean, the fact of the matter is they don't have any money. Uh, the government coffers are empty, more or less. Um, as as the guys were just explaining, it was all it was all nicked by the banksters. So, um, <clears throat> how their, how exactly this party would turn around and start to uh, Giving massive, uh, massive, massive injection of funds into social welfare programs and all the different areas where there's problems and have been problems in Greece because of these banker, bankers' bailouts. Then I don't know exactly how they would. How they, well, they've I, already I think, they've already done it in a, a constituency. They had an MP in in or in and around Athens. He like increased social spending by six, a factor of six or something. Where did he get the money from? I don't know. Right. I don't know where, where they get the money. What, I mean, where they can when? get the money for. I mean, they would have to, I, think, I think they would have to. When? When? Oh, over the last couple of years. I think since the last election, whenever they got <clears> the first I think, set of MPs into power. I think they would have to kind of radically re, restructure their entire uh, economy, essentially, and renege on all of its agreements, essentially. Well, they would have to default. Them. Yeah. They would have to kind of go the way of kind of Iceland, you know. They would have to take some pretty... Radical steps there, you know, throw a bunch of bankers in jail, you know, and just go it alone type of thing, and then yeah. see see how it pans out. But um, I don't think I, I doubt that these people, the, the noises they have been making, this party has been making up to now. Several of its kind of um, high-profile members have been saying that they're not going to drop out of the EU. They're not going to take anything, any you know, radical step like steps like that. The thing is. And we see how finance and politics combine together in those modern times. See that Iceland was a very small, is a very small, isolated island in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So it doesn't have much political and symbolic and geopolitical uh, power. Mm. Greece, on the other side, was it was a you remember your European. It was a, a big thing when Greece was uh, joined the EU. It was a non-neglectable event. I mean, I remember the, the mediatization of the event in uh, in France. It's uh, close to Nexus, close to the Middle East, to the connection with Asia, Europe, Africa. And uh, if Greece decides and manages to leave the European Union, it will be so easy for the financial and political world to destroy the Greek nation and made an example of it. And finally, what could have been a good example showing that you see you can leave the EU and claim back your sovereignty 
could become just the opposite. See, we told you Greece left Europe and now it's a utter disaster. It's 10 times worse than while it was part of the EU. Mm. It's so easy to destroy a small country like that, that as Joe emphasized, is so weak financially already. Yeah, I think someone's going to take uh, young Cyprus into a smoky room and uh, roll down a projector and play him a video of the assassination of any number of Greek leaders over recent decades. They weren't usually in government because, of course, Greece is under fascist dictatorship, but it'll be, you know, assassination angles from views never seen before. Oh, they could just explain to him how <coughs> Greece has effectively been, since the Second World War, Greece has been uh, a playground of the CIA and controlled by, largely controlled by Western powers, you know. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure he probably knows that already, you know. The scope for any any government already under the control of the kind of Western banking elite, the scope for any government like that to, to, to really do anybody, no matter, to do anything, no matter no matter who comes in, is very, very limited, you know. Because, I suppose at the end of the day, they have their, their Trump card, which is just they can, in some way, you know, isolate individuals. You know, they can um, they can either uh, blackmail them in some way or they can ultimately kill them if they want. You know, that's, that's, you know, we live in a mafia world today, you know, where you come along and, and just decide if you've got any kind of a influence or power. Like if you're a big enough country, you don't come along and start threatening the mafia boss and not expect repercussions, you know. That's the kind of world we live in and, uh, some countries did it to some extent, like Venezuela, Iran, Russia. But the major difference is that three countries are very rich in resources, oil in particular, which well, gave that the main difference. The main difference is, is that, as I said, any country that's in the Western sphere of influence, that is already in the Western sphere already. of influence, and by that I mean the European so, Union yeah. and America. Those countries weren't in NATO for 40 years. Those yeah. those countries that you're talking about uh, have isolated themselves and kept themselves isolated, uh, you know, or, or were far enough away to avoid being pulled into that sphere sphere of influence. But uh, and that's why they. But again, you see, when they isolate themselves to protect themselves, then they're forced into isolation. They're forced oh, to be yeah. isolated by these powers that I'm speaking of. You to know, give you an idea of the scale actions, of, of the challenge, assuming that a kind of a plan this new party would have, which would be to uh, break away and maybe join make alliances for the East, i.e. Russia, Eurasian mm-hmm. Union, whatever. Uh, some plan that involves saying, look, we're done with this, being under the, the thumb of this international Western financial troika. Greece would first have to make serious allies with Turkey. And they have been nicely, carefully split over hundreds of well, a hundred years anyway. Mm-hmm. So they've got to make natural allies with uh, their long-standing enemy. So yeah. if they look, if they look east, they're looking a big wall. They're looking at Turkey, you know. Yeah. And uh, Putin has laid a little bait there. Okay, so this terminal goes to right smack between the sure. border. And can you two work it out? That's kind of the invitation to just lay down there for them to. Yeah, and uh, look at France and Germany. There were enemies. Toward wars and uh, wars before that, and uh, it didn't prevent them from being the the leading couple of the 
European Union, the creation and development of the European Union. So, and they're very close also with control of, of the CIA. Of course, of course. But I mean, history of countries is one factor, but sometimes countries can go beyond beyond this uh, legacy and. Yeah, those things take time, though. You know, the problem is the problem is there's no true ideological leaders anywhere in this world. Well, maybe a few places, but none of any significant anywhere in this world today. They're all, uh, generally speaking, corrupt and into in the game for their own benefit, and all of them are playing both sides against the middle, right? I mean, all of the countries that uh, right now that are in play, let's say, for between in this new Cold War between the West and Russia, <clears throat> you see, most of these countries are all um, any of them that are that are looking to Russia, let's say, or sidling up to Russia a little bit. They're also at the same time uh, looking for a, a deal uh, from the EU, for example. Uh, you know, uh, to, to offset that, they'll say, "Well, we might go with Russia, but what have you got to offer us?" You know, I mean. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey has recently said has been putting pressure on this is after him, you know, accepting the deal with Russia for the South Stream, uh, for the new South Stream pipeline. Uh, he then turns around to Spudetico and, and demands that uh, the EU admit Turkey, the EU, and, and saying stuff like, if they don't, he's going to, um, if they don't do it, it'll be evidence for Turkey that uh, that the European Union is really uh, Islamophobic. That's just a little white man's kind of uh, elitist cabal, and you know. So, I mean, and last week, um, just quite a little report announcing that the latest um, batteries of U.S. Patriot missiles silos have arrived in Turkey. Yeah, as planned ten years ago. I mean, there's no way you can look to any of these people uh, with any kind of a, a sense of or any confidence that they are uh, going to do the right thing. This is what. You know, in our terms, in, in the context of the current geopolitical you know, setup right now, there's no way you can look at them to uh, as kind of um, people riding in the white horse to kind of say that they are do the right thing, with the exception maybe of Russia. You know, um, because Russia is has the power to do that, and even then we can't really present what Russia is doing as something entirely benevolent, or you know, they are not necessarily the good guys, they're simply reacting reacting to the current, the pre-established state of play in the world. And Russia comes to that game very late when all the pieces have already been placed on the board, most of them. Russia just form, reformed itself over the past 15 years. And, you know, the U.S. has been setting the game and setting the rules of the game for the past 60, 70, 80 years, you know. So Russia is simply having to work within that. And, and if Russia wants to be an independent country, it has to take a stance against the West and its kind of predatory nature. And the fact that it does that means that it does things that we support, which is against the West. It exposes the hypocrisy and the lies and the skullduggery of Western nations. But Russia is doing that out of its own self-interest. right? So that's, and that's fair and that's reasonable. So... When we say, you know, Russia is, you know, when we support Russia a lot, we're supporting Russia simply because Russia is, just wants to play fair. So That's how bad the state of this world is. Yeah. is. That someone who comes along and says, can't we just play fair where we all just, you know, get a piece of the pie? And that doesn't mean we're not going to exploit some people and be a bit corrupt here and there, but let's just have a normal level of corruption. Someone who comes along and says that, they, in the current state of this world, look like a savior. They look like, oh my God, it's Jesus has returned to save us all. 
That's how bad. So you look at it in context and it's relative and you understand that's how bad the world is. When you look to Russia as, as someone who could possibly like save the world or you have this idea that they're, that they're this knight in shining armor, that tells you that you live in a pretty effed up world. Yeah. And when you think about those countries plan who would like eventually to join Russia or the BRICS uh, all, it's a tricky move because today the dynamics is pretty clear. You have the current collapse of the the, the empire that dominated the world for decades, the U.S.-British uh, empire. And you have the emergence of the Eurasian, Paul, China, uh, India, Russia, etc. However... The, form, the, the first empire, the U.S. empire, is not dead yet. Mm-hmm. And this kind of psychopathic body, meta body, has a strong tendency to bring, try to bring the world down when it goes down. So when do you shift when you're a small country? When do you make the move? When do you start to align yourself fully and officially with the, the new force, the, the Russian uh, core, or the, the Russian pole? So that's why... I think a lot of small countries first have realized that you have to be aligned today because some players are too big. So you have to become an ally. So you have to choose your side. And a lot of countries are edging their bets, like Erdogan, because they know eventually uh, Russia is going up. They know that the uh, U.S. is going down. They know shift will happen. But uh, right now we are in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, you know, I don't even know if the West is going down. The West is in, still in such a powerful position. I mean, you have to take uh, account of... I mean, the, only thing, the, only way, the only way the West is going to go down <clears throat> is if everybody goes down together. Mm-hmm. You know, some kind of massive natural cataclysmic uh, yeah. cataclysm. When you, cataclysmic say West, cataclysm. When, when you say the West... An ordinary down. cataclysm, a cataclysmic one. Go ahead. <laughs> when you say the West goes down, what you mean is... The entire chessboard is, of course, just, just wiped off. Because the West is the world. They have it set up. They have a fail-safe mechanism in there that if they go down, everybody, by definition, goes down with them. Not because they'll necessarily pull them down, but, that's because, because, but because that's the way they have it set up. That's the way they have the global banking system, etc., set up. I, that it's, it's curtains for everybody. Yeah, I've got a little theory. I think, I'm, think I'm making an observation. I'm not sure. I'm still working on it. Um, so there's been a few cases, reports about computer viruses turning up, um, usually in private corporations, IT systems, also in some government agencies, in, in countries all over the world. And somebody suggested somewhere, I can't remember who made this suggestion, but they, they all have a lot of similarities to the Stuxnet virus, which was what the Israeli slash US intelligence people came up with as a way to destabilize, actually shut off, or even reprogram around, not just around civilian nuclear program, but the actual energy grid infrastructure. And what it looks like is that they have got all these things going on out there where they have booby-trapped the IT systems of whole of governments, of corporations, especially, not, not in their enemies, but in their allies. Mm-hmm. And I've got the impression that whenever they do something that they don't like or someone needs a little, you know, a zap, a shock, they will activate some of these programs. This is what the whole Cyber Warfare Command was set up for after 9-11. This is what Cyber Warfare is. It's 
it's like a shock collar around all your allies, not just your enemies. Yeah, I think this term a lie is very misleading. There's no lie. There is a, a master and there are slaves, client state, or we call them a, yeah, we and, want. And the master is always afraid the slaves will turn on him. And, and the slave is disposable. If the slave doesn't comply, you will get a beating, a good beating, and if he doesn't comply, he will be replaced. And uh, it's funny you mentioned the cyber attacks, because in Davos a few days ago, one of the main topics of discussion was cyber attacks. And, uh, and the example that was taken, it's another similarity with what we described uh, a few seconds ago, is that uh, this uh, Eugene Kaspersky, you know, the head of Kaspersky Lab Security Group, <coughs> Kaspersky. Kaspersky. I'm not Kaspersky. I'm Kaspersky because he's a Russian. Kaspersky. And he described how a uh, terrorist organization or even a government, because he say today the Estonian president said that the line between government sponsored attacks and criminal activity was becoming increasingly blurred. Well, that's a euphemism. Anyway, Kaspersky described how power generation systems in developed countries. And uh, you know how it goes, the, those kind of uh, statements in those kind of circles. So one uh, is left to wonder if uh, in the agenda of the elite, one of the next steps is uh, not a some kind of false flag operation, a cyber attack, scaring the crap out of people in order to justify some uh, draconian measures and uh, controlling the internet a bit more. Well, I, th- I think the, the Sony job was one of those exactly. a test run of the yeah. system. Was to blame North Korea and North Korea like, what? We, we didn't do that. <laughs> uh, and they even offered to help investigate, you know, the source of the attacks. There was another one, they blamed the Iranian cyber army. This goes back to like 2009, hacking Google Gmail accounts. And then they found out this quietly reported in Wired or some techie magazine. <clears throat> Actually, the source of the cyber attack came from England. So they've, I've no doubt they've been sort of, you know, beta testing this uh, false flag. And they call them cyber warfare. You can imagine, they would be the perfect, perfect venue to move into false flag stuff because it's impossible to say where it came from, but you can very easily make an attack appear come from anywhere in this, oh, yeah. this, in this sphere. And uh, the timing is all the more interesting that uh, over the last days, French politicians have been discussing laws concerning the control of internet and particularly what they call the jihadist sphere and web- website that uh, develop conspiracy theories and uh, talk about uh, Zionism and so it's an interesting uh, yeah timing. The jihadist sphere is a very interesting place. If you've ever been there, uh, it's like all getting bigger and they're feeding them on. Um, Thomas on pages of the Quran, and uh, and they just get bigger and bigger and train them how to be jihadis, and then they release them. You know, it's good though. That's uh, the jihadist sphere. Well, no, they good give, idea. They give them Nissan SUVs, and yeah, and then they release. Them. Train them how to drive them. Uh, so yeah, I was just wondering, actually, just as in passing, you know, I don't want to dwell on it very much, but uh, I don't want to dwell on it, but. Uh, well, he shall. I won't do it. No, there's just I was just there's a uh, Egypt. There's protests in Egypt uh, marking the uh, uprising of of 2011. You know, the major uprising against Mubarak. 
or democracy, basically. And so protests uh, just um, isn't he, today. Isn't he gone? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but this, these were protests. Well, they're still not happy because they didn't get democracy, uh, basically. You know what I mean? They got militaries. They, they got, uh, yeah, ultimately a, a military dictatorship shunted in largely uh, with the help of, of the West, of course. So people were protesting and um, 16 people were killed soon yesterday and today uh, in Egypt in these protests that were marking the first protest for democracy and still demanding it. So I was just wondering if Charlie Hebdo wanted to do another cartoon uh, mocking those 16 people who died. Well. Why not? They've got six million subscribers now. I mean, yeah. I'm sure they'd all be like, this is it'd be a good idea because, you know, that's what Charlie Hebdo magazine was about, was about um, you know, mocking dead people and making fun of other people's, um, you know, religion, etc., etc. So uh, that's an opportunity. I just wanted to put that out in case anybody from Charlie Hebdo is listening and could uh, go ahead and do a, uh, uh, an insulting cartoon on those dead Egyptian protesters who are protesting for democracy. Anyway, uh, uh, by by the way, Charlie Hebdo has been bought by a Rockefeller Group in November 2014. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it reminded me of, um, is it Larry Silverstein that bought the bail for the Water Center a few months before 9-11 and changed the terms of in contract insurance to include a, a term specific to uh, terrorist attacks. Oh, yeah? So I thought the timing was interesting. Oh, that is interesting. That, that's good business. Very good. That's, that's a coincidence theory you've got going on. Um, the Guardian is reporting today that Jewish leaders are calling for Europe-wide legislation outlawing anti-Semitism. Mm. The proposal would outlaw, would criminalize a host of other activities, um, including banning the burqa. That's confusing. Because aren't they all about that? Um, Forced marriage, polygamy, denial of the Holocaust, and denial of genocide. Polygamy? Yep, that's got to go. Where? In France? We're in Europe. Not Saudi Arabia. Who's proposing this? Um, <clears throat> Jewish leaders. Oh, it's kind of vague. They're proposing that all of Europe, all European countries outlaw... Well, it would be an EU law, yeah. So EU law Europe. to outlaw polygamy? Yes. Why? Well, is that... Oh, and there's a new crime... Is that something that Jewish people don't like in particular, polygamy? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's part of their sort of civilizing mission. They need to civilize people. Hmm. Um, They also want to criminalize xenophobia. Um, Cool, create a new crime called group libel, defamation of ethnic, cultural, or religious groups. Uh, Women's and gay rights would also be covered. So they want to also want to criminalize not liking nice things. Um, yeah, if you look down the bottom, it says that as well. You should also criminalize people who don't like uh, nice things. Yeah. Everybody should I'm like feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. No, we're not. No, we're not. I don't know where we are. Um, but uh, it's not very inter- it's very, uh, it's very interesting and not very pleasant to watch. Well, there is a new twist in the, this uh, lobbying we've been witnessing over the last week. See that... Uh, Anti-Zionism, according to some commentators, should be condemned as well, because, uh, according to some journalists, more and more, anti-Zionism is only a facade. You see, it's only an excuse to vent anti-Semitic ideas. 
anti-Zionism being just a, a pretext, actually. Although the Zionism is, a, as we know, a political ideology that is not Jewishness, it's a different concept, different thing. Yeah. I'm not allowed to pass comments, but four teenagers were arrested and convicted this week in France of supporting terrorism. Um, one of them for saying three words in a class debate about the Paris attacks. Uh, he said they were right. He didn't really elaborate what he meant by that, but I think the teacher assumed he meant the gunmen were right. Um, the teacher then said to him, if you think that, get out of my class. Uh, the student was then <clears throat> temporarily expelled from the school for a week. And the next week, the principal decided to report him to the police and press charges, after which he was arrested, thrown in jail for 24 hours. He's 14, by the way, this kid. Um, and no word yet on whether he's been convicted, but at least three other teens have been convicted. Now, they're not going to prison, but it's a criminal offence which will stay with them for the rest of their lives because they either said something in class or posted something on their Facebook wall. Mm. And that kind of this kind of anti-Muslim attitude has a sense because this is fundamentally a, a racial or a religious profiling and, and targeting uh, of Muslims. It's pretty clear uh, this is happening, happening in France, but it's happening in other countries in Europe, you know, um, in Germany and in the UK, and I'm sure in other countries, maybe, uh, maybe not to the same extent, but it's happening across, particularly in Western Europe, um, Muslims are suffering a backlash of abuse because of the Paris attacks. Which is kind of ridiculous, you know. I mean, if you're a responsible state, state's person, a state's man, a woman, or a politician, you would look at that and you'd think, well, something's gone wrong here. We've done something wrong, right? Because these were two guys, or, <clears throat> or three guys, who clearly were crazy. Uh, you know, their minds weren't their own. Somebody else owned their minds, maybe, I don't know. Uh, and, that is a defense in law. Well, yeah, so their minds weren't their own, you know, they they, they were, it's almost like, you know, you know, they weren't, um, they weren't operating under their own, you know, volition mm-hmm. almost, you know, uh, and to then blame France's uh, six million Muslims or to do anything uh, that would result in, um, these kind of attacks or a backlash against Muslims, not just in France, but in other European countries, is, is ridiculous. It's crazy. They obviously handle the situation very, very badly because we, we would have to assume that they don't want this to happen, right? I mean, politicians and the media don't intend for the ordinary non-Muslim or Christian public to start hating Muslims because of the actions of three people who are clearly, you know, under some kind of external influence. Maybe it was the devil or something. But these people were obviously uh, very disturbed. So it's like uh, it's like blaming ordinary people in any community for the actions of one crazy person that everybody agrees is crazy is the thing, you know? The rhetoric after the Charlie Hebdo attacks uh, or, or the statements by the media and politicians made it very clear that these people were extreme, extreme extremists, you know? They were just 
they were at an extreme fringe of society and blah, 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 blah. So um, it's, it's totally unconscionable for them to have engaged in any kind of speech or whatever way they kind of dealt with the situation at the time and afterwards uh, that it has resulted in this. Because they ultimately are responsible for that. They're the ones who uh, the government works very closely with the media. The media generally does what the government wants, uh, and despite what people think. And um, it, that's where ordinary people get their information from. So there's a direct link there to government uh, actions and what ordinary people in Western countries think about Muslims. Right. So they did an awful lot wrong there. They did the opposite of what they should have been done uh, doing, which was uh, to uh, make it very clear that in every way possible, this wasn't had nothing to do with ordinary Muslims. Was, they were not to be blamed. They were not to be responsible. And in the case that you do have some kind of a backlash there where people, you know, non-Muslims in Western countries do go ahead and blame Muslims, those people should be prosecuted. Those people should be made an example of in the interest of society and, and a, a peaceful society and people cohabiting and living together. The people who go out and attack Muslims, and they're the ones who should be uh, being made an example of, let's say. And they should be being prosecuted very quickly and put in jail and it should be all across the media as an example to all other Western uh, non-Muslims that this is not not to be tolerated. It's not going to be tolerated. But it's strange because of what you just You're said. You're darn tootin'. Yeah, so uh, I agree. So the, the thing is, what Neil just said, it seems that the opposite is happening, where it's actually the government is encouraging that kind of Islamophobia by making examples of Muslims when they should be doing the opposite. Yeah, one line was crossed a few months ago, at least in France, before the, this uh, unfortunate Charlie Hebdo event, when uh, intellectuals, commentators in the national media sphere, starting to equate, surprisingly, because it was really in contradiction with uh, the ideas that had been spread for years, they started to uh, Muslim, any Muslim individual, with a potential jihadist, with a potential radical Islamist. And uh, in order to justify this very drastic change line, they used the fact, or they developed the, the idea that the Quran is, potent, is a, a fundamentally violent teaching. Therefore, any Muslim, any believer in the Quran is a potential jihadist, a potential uh, terrorist. That was very surprising at the time, very surprising shift. And uh, that after Charlie Hebdo, it made more sense why those commentators allowed themselves to make those outrageous comments. And now in France, there is a, a law condemning apology of terrorism. And uh, a French attorney made a, an interesting comment. He quoted Laurent Fabius, French foreign Affairs, Minister for Foreign Affairs. Laurent Fabius commented the actions of uh, rebels in Libya, a terrorist group funded by France. And he said, ils ont fait du bon boulot. They made a good job. So French minister said about a terrorist group, they made a good job. But Is it you're not apology of terrorism? No, because you, you forgot to apply the devil thing. Is Oops. They are not terrorists. They're the good guys. Spectacular wave of double think this week. Um, given this environment and this climate, 
uh, of Islamophobia, um, Islamophobia, if not fear of the Muslim, but a violent reaction against Muslims in general, you would think that when King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia kicked the book this week, you would be a fairly muted affair. You know, like, who cares? But instead, these same Western leaders who are indirectly or directly stoked against Muslims went out of their way to kiss Saudi Arabia's butt. Saudi Arabia isn't just another Muslim country. It is the source of all this stuff going way back. The, the very not just yeah the actual, not just the actual idea of terrorism the whole every association people have in their head with the extremist Muslims like swords head chopping people um, they do that wearing the the head scars you know towel head do it uh, treating women like shit cutting limbs all of this all of this is Saudi Arabia it comes from this place the very place that is the only exception to the rule when it comes to Stoking hatred against Muslims. Mm-hmm. That's the cradle of Islamism, the cradle of Wahhabism. The beheadings are made in public in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Cutting of the limbs. Where was Charlie Hebdo when a blogger was given a, what a thousand lashes for insulting the leader? In quotes, that was the charge. Uh, it's, it's it's worse than that. I mean, the, I mean, there's the whole. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Uh, hypocrisy on display, but we've got used to that at this point. But apparently, it doesn't bother too many people. I don't know if, it, if there are people out there who are bothered by this, but, you know, flags were at half-mast this week after um, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia died. This old guy who was basically, you know, he was like just a piece of furniture for the past six but months. Yeah, he wasn't uh, up to very much. And the guy who's taken over from him was already acting uh, head of state. You know, they f- they flew flags in the UK at half mast over like Buckingham Palace, the Queen's residence, and uh, Downing Street, uh, several other places. You know, um, House of Parliament, basically the Queen, the Prime Minister, and the House of Parliament all had their flags at half mast. Queen had her knickers at half mast, probably as well. So, uh, <laughs> so did Chuck. <laughs> so, you know, but the thing is, um, it's amazing, like you're saying, that uh, this fawning deference to this corrupt, evil. Uh, regime. Regime. Well, it's a regime, but this one person who, you know, if he wasn't the head of Saudi Arabia, he would be in shot as he would be being targeted as a raghead or, or a sand nigger, whatever they call them, um, by U.S. military forces. You know, uh, it's just there's no there's no sense to any of it. You know, and this is from in a country that, as you said, kind of beheads uh, people all the time. Um, Amnesty, Amnesty International says they've executed 2,000 people publicly from 1985 to last year. Like chopping heads off, yeah, or mass hangings in car parks while thousands of people gather around and watch it. And and some of the offences in this country are like disobeying the ruler. And they have a they have a male guardianship system. Women can't travel, get a passport, marry, 
drive a car. Or continue their education. They can't drive a car unless they have the approval of a male relative. Yes. Less than 10% of Saudis can vote. Mm-hmm. And yet they all, they all flew off to Saudi Arabia. All they had to stay. Oh, they, they dropped everything. Yeah. Obama was going to be... He, had, he, he cut short his visit to India. Yeah. And this is... This is the kind of here's another example from this is from 2013. There's a there's a Saudi Arabian preacher, right? He's kind of like a fundy preacher, but he's part of the Saudi kind of uh, you know elite class basically. He's a celebrity Saudi preacher, and this is 2013. He was accused of raping, torturing, and killing his five-year-old daughter. Uh, well, he wasn't accused of it; he was convicted of it, effectively. Um, but he was released from custody because he was able to pay blood money. He gave some money, of which he had a large quantity, uh, to absolve himself of, of these sins because he was a kind of a member of the Saudi elite. And they, they do this flagrantly, you know. And this happens in Western countries as well. Politicians and the elite of Western countries get away with stuff, but at least they try to be a bit more covert about it. And certainly in a case like this, where publicly everyone in Saudi Arabia knew that this guy had... I mean, it's just horrible. But, I mean, he was obviously a completely, he was a complete, he was a monster. He's more than just a, your average psychopath. He was a complete monster, you know. He uh, he admitted it. She was, uh, his five-year-old daughter uh, had uh, multiple injuries, including a crushed skull, broken back, broken ribs, a broken left arm, and extensive bruising and burns. And social workers said she had also been repeatedly raped and burnt. His five-year-old daughter. And apparently he admitted this and said that um, he he did it because he doubted his five-year-old daughter's virginity. Mm-hmm. Probably after he had raped her. No this, is all in pu- this is all in public. <clears throat> and then he basically beats her to death. And this is all in public. And he gets off in Saudi Arabia, and this is in the news. People in the West know this as well. In the kind of justice system in Saudi Arabia for the elite. Mm-hmm. And he gets off with paying some cash. Here's some cash, now let me go on. He's free. And yet, like you said, in other cases... Petty criminals have their hands chopped off or stealing from from a local store. Or women are put in prison for driving. The, the and this is these are the people the king this is the regime that all of our vaunted Western leaders go and kiss the feet of because the king dies and go over and drop everything uh, and, and go and fawn all over them. Yeah. The king's own daughters are under house arrest and have been for since they were children themselves. Mm. Yes, 22 children for, from four different wives. Um, and what is interesting is that in Saudi Arabia and a few other Emirates in the Middle East, blood money is uh, recognized by the law. And the interesting thing is that there are some kind of hierarchies, like in the caste system in India. So if you kill a Saudi, you will pay a massive amount of money. If you kill a Caucasian, I think that's the second level, you would pay much less. I think the third level, uh, uh, ironic, but I think it's true, the third level is a camel. If you hit a camel driving in the dunes in the desert, you would pay even a less, an even lesser amount of money. And if you kill a Pakistani or, or, Indian. Those kind of, uh, yeah, or Indian, those kind of nationalities, you would pay even less. So actually, that's very close to what we describe as feudalism, although feudalism was very much demonized, but Saudi Arabia is a feudal, oligarchic, family-ruled potentate. Mm-hmm. This is where, if you have the stereotypical image of the backwards Muslim, 
this regime that you direct all of your IRA. But, you see, people have it now that, oh, this is natural to all Muslims. All Arabians, mm-hmm. all Muslims across the Middle East, the Maghreb, North Africa, and then all the way across the equator to Indonesia. No, it is particular to this regime, and it is no coincidence that Western leaders fawn over them. Mm-hmm. I think in part because of an ideological recognition, a kind of a, God, if we could only do things like that in the West, yeah. they would love it. They would love it. Well, the other reason is, obviously, oil, black gold. Oil and, yes, that was control that. of keeping them on yeah. side to control that oil and make sure it goes to the right people, yeah. control the price of oil, and also yeah. to make sure that they don't do any deals with their neighbors kind of to the north-east, uh, which is uh, on, on Eurasia, Russia, etc. And China. let's... let's if we can briefly go back to how this regime started. It began with the Great Betrayal, when the British intelligence, the famous uh, Lawrence of Arabia scenario, betrayed the Arabs. Like they got them to fight with them in World War One, make sure Germany didn't get its paws in there, and then they betrayed by not only splitting up the Middle East as they did, the Sykes-Picot Agreement to deal with the French. Uh, the original guy they promised power in, in now to be created, Saudi Arabia was never Saudi. It's Saudi came from the name of the family they gave it to instead. Mm-hmm. It, was, it could have been called anything else. I think it was going to be a Hussein, a, yeah. the, the Hashemite yeah. kings. Who, they, he got Iraq instead. Mm-hmm. That's the origin of it. But of course, yeah, it's, it's a, there's it's a constant relationship them. based around oil. It promised them time. democracy and autonomy and self-rule and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let them to fight for them and then it basically, like you're saying, betrayed them and set up client puppet corrupt rulers that have been there ever since. Yeah, they had a name for it in the 60s. They called this the global Islamic mission. This is internal policy within Saudi Arabia. It was done with the full understanding of the CIA and MI6. Mm-hmm. But Saudi Arabia was going to be the counterweight to what was then spread of secular nationalist mm-hmm. Arab countries mm-hmm. led by Nasser in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they funded to the hilt, the Muslim Brotherhood, madrasas, Wahhabi, teaching this extreme what you know is Islam today should be Islam in quotes because they got the most extreme ideolo- ideologues and Saudi sitting on oil so they funded them to the tune of billions and they spread this mission of theirs other and, Islam well slash rational it, normal it secular relations well, between the people yeah, there it was largely secular obviously it's the same secularism as you have it would have been the same secularism uh, as you have in the West you know largely where there's no kind of authoritarian, Christian-led governments who impose, you know, biblical doctrine on the people kind of thing. They, uh, Western powers, set that up in the Middle East, specifically because they could much better, that way they could much better control the population by having these kind of laws. As people talk about Sharia law and all that kind of stuff, Sharia law, first of all, it's based on British law. And secondly, it is uh, used and imposed by... Um, these puppet, tin pot, kind of puppet dictators in the Middle East to keep control of the population, to have a, to rule over them with a strong authoritarian hand so that you will have no <clears throat> outbreak. And as Neil was saying, to stop, uh, particularly during after the Second World War, to stop um, essentially pan, secular pan-Arabism from spreading across the Middle East and the Maghreb, where you would have uh, developed democracies in the Middle East that would obviously therefore you know, look to their own resources to uh, to independent to be independent and to to take care of their own people. Basically, like you would have 
European, you could have a, could have had a European Union or Western European countries in the Middle East, exactly the same thing. But the West stopped that from happening because of oil resources, because they wanted to make sure that they, the West, had a complete control over those oil resources and the wealth that had brought them and control over much of the world as a result. And they did it by setting up these tin pocket theaters. It's a story that's as old as, well, I don't know if it's as old as time, but it's been going on for a long, long time. And it's the essence of empire, of controlling the world and, and establishing and maintaining a global empire. You have your client regimes uh, around the world, and they focus particularly on the Middle East because of the uh, resources that yeah. were there. The, the ideological godfather, this is the term used by Ayman al-Zakawiri, the guy, Mr. Mm. Mr. Magoo, okay, it's Mr. Magoo, yeah. right-hand man of Osama bin Laden, this guy said, their chief, their, the man who got it all started, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, was a guy named Saeed Qutub, Q-U-T-B, and he was in prison, he was in prison by NASA because NASA realized he was a dangerous nut job in Egypt in the 60s. This guy is on record as saying, simply, that America made Islam. Just like that, not Islam in quotes. The only reason there's an Islamic revival, at least in the form it has taken in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, is because it was made that way. The idea that this is inherent to Muslims and that it all goes back to them being barbarians back in the medieval ages is completely turned around by this fundamental lie. A 20th century Western, UK, US especially, lie. In truth, if anything, uh, our legacy from the Muslims of the Middle Ages that they actually civ- they were the civilized ones. They brought civilization, they brought civilization, back, civilization back to Europe, after, back to Europe after we were wiped out yeah. the last time around. But so, it's uh, I mean, and it's the clash of civilizations, you know, and this idea of the clash of civilizations and there's other examples of similar ideologies that are formed around kind of uh, real politic or, or the that which they, the Western powers deem to be expedient to maintaining their uh, empire and control over uh, a certain part of the world, um, they uh, they say, you know, well, what we need to do in this part of the, the country here is to have, uh, in this part of the world, is to have um, an extremist ideology, a dominant extremist ideology, authoritarian governments, dictators that we control, uh, that uh, that that would allow us to to keep control over the resources <clears throat> and that part of the world. And then after, once they figure that out, the practical ways of doing that, then they create an ideology around it to explain it and as if it's some kind of force of nature, it's some natural force of nature, like the clash of civilizations. And that's where you get this concept from, um, where it's presented as, an, as um, well, you're always going to have this clash. And see, it's happening right now. But they create it in advance, create the facts on the ground in advance and then afterwards come out and say, yes, well, let's, let's analyze this and why this happened as though they had nothing to do with it. When in fact, they made it happen, effectively, and then create this narrative as if it's some force of, uh, like I said, force of nature. We're on a mission from God. Exactly. Sort of. No, well, it wasn't that. They are God. They think they create the reality. They do. That's the thing. They do to the extent that people believe it. Yeah. Well, uh, or maybe they control a few aspects of reality. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, that people don't make and the media tries to avoid this connection being made of uh, who's the primary head chopper uh, and has been the primary head choppers in the in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, for a long time, and then you have ISIS who who are trumpeted in the West 
as uh, as the, the, the barbarity of this group because they're going around cutting people's heads off, you know. But I mean, there's a direct connection there. You know, where did this idea of head chopping come from? You know, this kind of brutal uh, law where you basically where it becomes so commonplace uh, for for some people that people should get their heads chopped off publicly. Well, it started in Saudi Arabia. You know, under the Saudis Wahhabist Salafist kind of extremist interpretation of Islam and extremely brutal punishments for for ordinary crimes. That's all just a way to control the population. You terrorize the population. I mean, you do enough public head choppings for people robbing from stores or, or, or other kinds of crimes. Well, eventually people are going to be, well, they're going to keep their heads down, right? They're going to keep their heads away from swords, right? So it's a way to terrorize and control the population. And it became normalized, at least in Saudi Arabia. And then they export this uh, these extremist groups and they spread the same ideology. So if you want to look uh, at, the, at the source of the origin of, of groups like ISIS, uh, look to Saudi Arabia, and if you, want to, if you want to see what the source or the origin of Saudi Arabia is, look to Western governments just 60 or 70 years ago. Uh, that's that's what's going on. And recently, they they pulled out two uh, two Chinese uh, Japanese guys who were supposedly beheaded recently by ISIS in Iraq, and you know, that's bring Japan in, you know, uh, get Japan all up in arms about their citizens having their heads chopped off by ISIS. It's terrible. Maybe Japan will send. Uh, Make an aircraft carrier or send it to a, maybe Japan has one aircraft carrier, I think, but it's a very small one. Maybe they'll send that to the Middle East, you know, like the French have after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. You know, yeah, I mean, really, does nobody question these things? Charlie Hebdo attacks, and you're going to send France is going to send the only aircraft carrier to the Middle East as a response? Really? Two deranged, three deranged individuals who, who should have been put in a psychiatric hospital? It's, yeah. You know, but they, they happen to go and go on a killing spree. Uh, in, in, in a cartoon office, and you send your aircraft carrier to a region of the world to deal with that threat? What threat? They're dead. Supposedly, you know, your your, your policemen killed them. So, well, but even even so, what are you going? What's your aircraft carrier going to do? What are you going to invade? Well, I mean, none of it makes any sense whatsoever. There's obviously something else going on there, but people don't question it apparently. You know. These Japanese guys are apparently on some green screen. It looks a bit like a green screen because this one particularly, the two guys really don't look. It looks like they're photoshopped onto the onto the scene. You know, the kind of depth of field and the lines around their heads. It looks like uh, they're not really where where they appear to be in the desert, right? With this jihadi John behind them. But uh, was yep. it him again? Yeah. But the other people who the the other thing that um, I haven't seen much discussion of is. How does this ISIS group get all of these Westerners or Asians now? How does it, how does it find them? You know, because um, you think by now, are they kidnapping aid workers or something? Well, yeah, but well, but you think aid workers would have got wise at, at this point, you know? Um, and there's some question over who the people in in the past uh, year or so, who the people, the Americans and the British. The guys who were on the camera getting their heads cut off, type of thing, by Jihadi John, who they actually were and what they were doing there, you know. Well, I don't know. Maybe they were just ordinary people, but I, I presume they were just who they appear to be. But I'm not so sure. My, but my question, my question is, how do they get access to them? You know, and I think that, as I was explaining in an article I wrote recently for Shot, um, called um, Imperial Designs, I kind of explained the process uh, that Western intelligence agencies go through 
when they're combating this kind of a terrorist group. And right from the very beginning, they seek to infiltrate them, uh, to put their people in there, i.e., you know, members of the group that they have turned who are now working for Western intelligence. That would probably be a requirement because you can't take your average pasty white Brit from Liverpool and throw them in the, the middle of a ISIS training camp and do that. Do a really good accent. Let your beard you know, grow. Let your beard go and do a really good accent. But, of course, there's that. But, uh, well, again, in the UK, they have, they don't have uh, only white Westerners to choose from, to pick from, right? I mean, if they, if British intelligence, for example, really wanted to infiltrate ISIS, they would have quite a lot of um, Muslims. And Muslims of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of Pakistanis and Indians but people from the Middle East and other areas. Because, of course, ISIS is a grouping of various different people from all over, from all over the place, from Pakistan think, and Afghanistan, not just, you know, Iraq or Syria. So they could easily... They're getting from, from drug stings, usually. They're police informants. Yes, they could easily infiltrate them, but they could also turn people that they capture, you know, they're on the ground there in Iraq. They could have uh, taken some and infiltrated them into the group. And the goal being to take control of the group. Um, and one of the they've used historically, British intelligence have used, used historically, is that when, when they have their agents infiltrated into the group, they seek to, and into a position of relative uh, power or influence within that group, uh, they seek to, to direct the activities of the group in a way that makes it look bad. Uh, so one of the ways that they would probably do this, one, one, way, one thing that fits with this MO is to have a British agent, for example, within ISIS or any other uh, jihadi group in the Middle East and provide information as to where aid workers are or I can get you some aid workers, I know where they are. And this information is being passed to the agent, obviously, to give it to the other guys in the group who don't know he's an agent and they go and they get a couple of Japanese aid workers or they go and get an American or British aid worker or whoever, you know, someone who looks Western and then they go and, and even to suggest the idea of chopping their heads off, you know. I mean, these are all <clears throat> methods that have been used previously by British intelligence when they had infiltrated inside groups. So just from a historical perspective, it's almost certain that in the context that Muslim groups, you know, resistance or revolution or whatever you want to call them, groups in the Middle East, have been infiltrated, that there are agents of Western intelligence agencies within those groups, and given that it's been going on for quite some time now, they're probably in positions of uh, of, of of influence within those groups. But like I was saying in the article, the point is, whenever you get to that point, you don't just try and find a way to dissolve the group or decapitate it, you know, figuratively, like remove the leadership or have your agent kill all the leadership and just dissolve it. Your goal isn't at that point isn't to to destroy the group, but to then use the group that you are now in control of for your own objectives, if your geopolitical objectives uh, demand it, you would find yourself in a position of, well, let's not get rid of them just yet, you know, because we can do some things with these people, you know, we can control the region. That's pretty much, I think, uh, largely what's happening, you know, um, because there's a lot of people, not just us, but there's a lot of other people, um, even you know, official voices in Western media and stuff who have said or have questioned how really, how how uh, 
it hasn't been possible that um, Western bombing campaigns, etc., on ISIS or ISIL or whatever in Iraq haven't been able to wipe them out because apparently there's only about at, a, at most thirty thousand of them, and they're a very disparate kind of group, and they're not they don't have a real strong leadership type thing, and really with the influence they have, and and you're talking here not just about Western powers like not not just the U.S. and the U.K. and France, etc., but also the Saudis being involved. I mean, the idea that they wouldn't have been able to, to get rid of this, what was essentially just an upstart kind of bothersome little gang of people, is ridiculous, you know? Yeah, it comes back to, I mean, really, how difficult is it to find Osama bin Laden in a cave, yeah. for God's sake? Yeah. And what is interesting is that this, while the killing of those Charlie Abdul journalists was meditized again and again all around the planet. Hey everybody, it's uh, Tim here from the sound booth. Looks like we lost our hosts. Their call dropped from Skype, so we'll just um, play something here until they find their way back. Searching through my sound files. Maybe something from John Lennon. He's always good. Hang on. I think our all our society is run by insane people for insane objects, mm. objectives. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I sussed when I was 16 and 12, way down the line. But I expressed it differently all through my life. It's the same thing I'm expressing all the time. But now I can put it into that sentence. I think we're being run by maniacs for maniacal mean, uh, ends, you know. If, if anybody can put on paper what our government and the American government, etc., and the Russian, Chinese, what they are actually trying to do, you know, and how, what they think they're doing, mm. I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. You know, but I'm liable to be put away as insane for expressing that. Mm. You know, that's what's insane about it. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes. Uh, and if that's the way it's supposed back. to be, we know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. God damn it. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, 
I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Go ahead and do that, everybody. Just take a few minutes there. We'll wait and go ahead and stick your head out the window and yell that. See if it makes any difference. Your native language. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> no, we were just talking about um, the general, you know, to try and make sense of all of this going on. It can get very complicated and we've got all sorts of lies and manipulations, double talk and double speak and double think going on and to try and, by the media and politicians to try and not understanding what's going on uh, is that the West is desperately trying to cling on to its um, status as world hegemon and in the face of an encroaching Russia uh, or surgeon Russia and China um, and the Middle East is uh, that middle, general Middle East area we've expanded a little bit is, is the place that uh, is being fought over or that the West is very concerned about losing and here we're talking about you know, the Maghreb, Northern Africa and Middle East and down into Saudi Arabia, obviously, uh, Yemen and even down into Africa, Somalia and stuff. Uh, they want to make sure that the Chinese and the Russians simply do not have make any inroads into that area and basically kick the West out because that would spell doom for, for Western hegemony. And recently, uh, there was there's... I mean, it's been going on for quite a while. In fact, it's been going on for about 60 or 70 years in Yemen since the British uh, set up a, a tin-pot dictator uh, against similar to the Saudis in Yemen. And they did that to ensure that they had control over the Red Sea and uh, this, the Suez Canal um, as, as a trade route, essentially. They wanted to control those countries to make sure, again, to keep uh, uh Russia, the Russians, that was at the time of the Cold War, but now it's, as, as the West has been saying, as the US government has been saying, this is kind of like they've dusted off their Cold War playbook, and it's the same problem again of Russia, and now kind of, to some extent, aligned with China, who are threatening to make inroads there, and Yemen is still in the grip of a a tin pot, a Western-backed tin pot dictator, and there are these Houthi rebels, and they try to kind of, you know, Obama's been droning, drone-striking uh Yemen for several years now, killing civilians, claiming Al-Qaeda is there. But in fact, it's just ordinary people who want, uh, ordinary Yemenis who want democracy and have wanted democracy in Yemen for many decades. Um, And recently they attacked the presidential palace. And of course, the UN condemned it and said this isn't right, it shouldn't shouldn't happen, blah, 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 blah. And they're pitching it as Al-Qaeda, etc. But that's not really what's going on. It's... uh, Yemen is strategically important, just south of Saudi Arabia. So if you look at a map, you can see all this. You know, it's the Gulf of Aden there has, has uh, it's very close to uh, Somalia, which has a lot of oil resources as well. The West is very interested in Somalia and has been for a long time because of its potential oil resources. And effectively, East Africa, or the Horn of Africa, there is a very strategic and resource-laden part of the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just about its resource wars. That's what it's always been about. Uh, at least at the practical level, it's been about resource wars, and it's kind of um, sad. Now you're only the, the choreography of it is is disgusting. I mean, that's at one level, it's about securing the Middle East for the West, but it kind of another level to it is, is securing the West as it is. They, they don't want people to be thinking and seeing this in any way because they would naturally be repulsed by it. And so when you get a situation where two Japanese aid workers 
uh, or up next for the beheading routine in Syria. It enables the pro-Western Prime Minister of Japan to do the whole, oh, we're on the threat from ISIS. No, you're not. You're 10,000 miles away. There's no threat to Japan, but he can scare people in Japan into kind of maintaining their don't think, don't don't criticize, don't even dare thinking that our natural allies are China and possibly Russia. Don't even think about it, you know. But it's not even that they're afraid that people will think such things. That's that's too much for people. That that they would recognize the far more pragmatic way of fairer way of doing business. Uh, coming from at the moment Russia, China, and they just they desperately hold people to this this kind of an ideology. So I guess it's a Western liberal ideology. So now it's Japan, and then right now John Kerry has been all over the world this week. I mean, the guy was in London lecturing people about human rights. Then he was um, and how to deal with ISIS in quotes. Then he went to Saudi Arabia to kiss Saudi butt. Then he went to India and now he's in Nigeria. And just as he arrived in Nigeria, lo and behold, there's another massive bomb attack. Of course, it was in no way directed at him. It was a kind of a reminder to Nigerian people and the Nigerian government why, you see this guy coming in? Why you need him? Why they need us. See? Kaboom. It wasn't actually ISIS trying to, or Boko Haram actually trying to take Kerry out or anything. It always happened. Whenever, I remember when Fenton was Secretary of State, how many times is she about to land in the country? And kaboom. Hi, I'm here. It's all good. I got you back. You know, that disgusting witch would be the savior. And it's part of reminding as many people as possible. They want them all in this hive mind, this Western mind. That, uh, it's, it's so revolting, but it's how they work. It's The violence is, on the one hand, it just seems to come together. They don't plan every single detail of things, but the choreography of it, there is some kind of hive mind that works, system that works behind it. Remind it's really freaky. What we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. This message must be read in every newspaper, heard on every radio, seen on every television. This message must resound throughout the entire interlink. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman, and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember why they need us. It's becoming more and more relevant every day, that speech from yeah. Viva Vendetta and the Chancellor saying, you know, why we, that we're on the edge of oblivion, you know, uh, on the edge of chaos. I mean, that's the whole message from the whole uh, Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism business, but an attempt to terrify yeah. Western populations and, you're and justify... Yeah. And then Westerners are invited to believe that it's all under control. It's, yeah, you know, we're doing a lot of bad things, but remember what we're up against. Mm. We've got to do precision bombings and so on. And then, and then, and now and again, you get this, like, there's a former U.S. drone operator who had the courage to speak out. And he says, we didn't even really know who we were firing at. Mm. You know, the whole precision, oh, we got this terrorist. They had no clue. They were just firing random crowds of people. He alone reckons he has killed some 1,600 people, one U.S. drone operator. I mean, the horror of that, it's its just incredible. Um, it, speaking of, you know, choreographed threats, there was another one this week. Lo and behold, ISIS is now saying they're going to attack the EU via the Balkans. 
of course, it's framed immediately in the context of, oh, the EU is like, you know, oh, us and the Balkan countries, we've got to work together. You know, we've got to come up with a new security strategy for Europe, you know. We've got to be hermanos. What's not being said between the lines is to Serbia, don't you dare even consider looking east, looking to Russia. You know, you're with us now. And in fact, a Bosnian minister, he didn't say why he resigned, but, well, he did. He said he was resigning because he was protesting against arms deliveries going to Ukraine. These NATO, uh, the, the U.S. formally sanctioned delivery of weapons to the Kiev junta, they're, they're being routed through the Balkans. No surprise there, because that's how a lot of things are routed into Europe, drugs, weapons. Uh, and this Bosnian minister, just one voice, but his resignation and the kind of simultaneous ISIS threat via the Balkans, you see what's going on. is this schism at play under the surface. And it comes back to you know, what Joe was talking about, this well, mad geopolitical. Talking about that guy, that drone operator who said that you know, he didn't really know who uh, <laughs> who he was killing. Um, I mean, that's again, that's uh, that's part of the course for basically U.S. Uh, military personnel over the past. I don't know you could probably go go back a uh, hundred years. You know, there was there's one um, uh, in the uh, what was it? In the, it was in the sixty in the in the sixties when um, the CIA was uh, carrying out covert bombing runs on um, on communists, so-called communists in um, in in Indonesia. Uh, there's one guy who was he was taken from the military and brought into the CIA uh, to fly planes, bombing just kind of covert bombing runs on. It was it was supposedly against communists or communist spread and the spread of communism in Indonesia, but it was really about um, kind of the U.S. maintaining control over that part of the world like it always is. And there's this guy called uh, Alex, oh, sorry, Alan Lawrence Pope. Uh, <clears throat> he was eventually captured. His plane crashed and he was captured, but he was uh, at, on the appeal of the American government, he was released and sent back to America. But he said, uh, uh, I enjoyed killing communists. They said Indonesia was a failure, but we knocked the shit out of them. We killed thousands of communists, even though half of them probably didn't even know what communism meant. You know, and, and run, they forest, run. Run, forest. run, forest, run. Yeah. <laughs> was, that, was that run, forest, run? I don't know. I don't know how that applies, but I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> this is an example of the same kind of thing. I mean, this is from um, oh, from nineteen. He was captured in 1962, I think, in Indonesia. Um, and this is, what, you know, or 50 years later, and you have effectively the same kind of operative, now using piloting a drone from a from a bunker or a base in Arizona, the Arizona desert or something, um, firing missiles at people in, in the Middle East. Yeah. And he says, I don't know, I don't know who I was killing, you know. I'm killing said, Muslims, but they don't, even, Muslims, they but, don't even know they're terrorists. Yeah. yeah. I'm killing jihadis, although Muslims don't even know what jihadis really means, you know, but I'm killing them. So. And meanwhile, you have this uh, massive budget Hollywood production being released on the screens around the world, titled American Sniper, mm-hmm. where you have this uh, very simplistic and uh, erroneous depiction of a 
sniping uh, techniques and war, basically. On one side, you have the saviors, the Caucasian, American, bright, smart, well-doing snipers. And on the other side, you have, it's not even, they're not even Muslims, but they're not even depicted as human beings anymore. They are just potential terrorists. They are threats. They are like animals, like pests that have to be eliminated. So you see the mind job, you have a total reversal of values and what is a cold-blooded murders of most of the time innocence mm -hmm. becomes glorified. One of the most repressive acts for a human being, i.e. murder of another human being, an innocent one in addition, is depicted as something great, something good, something mm -hmm. heroic. And uh, you have all these kids, all those people looking at that. And uh, so it has an influence on our psyche, on our soul. Yeah. At play, yeah. And uh, like, you know, the propaganda uh, is just crazy. It's just, you know, I mean, I can understand why a lot of people would be just turned off because it's so, either it's so confusing, it doesn't make any sense anymore, so they just switch off, or they realize that it's far too difficult to try and figure it out. Uh, what's actually going on, so they just switch off. I mean, this guy, Alexander Litvinenko, um, there's a public inquiry into his death, which was in 2006, um, at just beginning, and it's in the UK because he was murdered in the UK. This is uh, Alexander Litvinenko, who's former uh, FSB or Russian intelligence operative, who then turned, into, turned himself into a reporter and apparently became... Um, uh, started reporting on or trying to expose the evils of the enemies, let's say, in the media. But Litvinenko bears all the hallmarks of someone who was essentially turned uh, or a double agent, you know, um, who left the FSB and decided to work with British intelligence uh, in an effort to extract secrets um, or information or intelligence about Russia for the British. And uh, he was killed in 2006. He died from polonium poisoning. Um, but he somehow ingested polonium, which is a rather rare radioactive uh, radioactive uh, material that is from the from the process of creating. Well, I suppose creating. Uh, I don't know if it's thought to be nuclear mm. nuclear weapons, or it can just be from. I think uh, it's nuclear weapons only. Nuclear uh, power. I don't know, but I think it's nuclear weapons. Yeah. Mm. So. Um, the public inquiry into his death, and I mean, all along, the West had been touting uh, the story that he was killed by Putin because he was threatening to say things about Putin or he was condemning Putin all over the place. Um, but I wrote a few articles at the time on that, and I mean, it's much more complicated than that, and it seems that when you see this kind of negative media, Western media offensive against Putin, you can generally tell that it's false, you know, I mean, because <laughs> they make stuff up about Putin and Russia all the time as we've seen in Ukraine, for example, over and over again. Um, but one of the, releasing a tape, supposedly, that he was recorded on his deathbed, where he gave some uh, information. And this is, I don't know if this is what's going to hang on. I suppose they're trying to figure out how he was killed. They're going to conclude that it was the Russians, obviously. But it was more likely, well, <clears throat> if you look for priors, the only other known person who was killed by polonium poisoning was Yasser Arafat. And he was killed by the Israelis. So uh, you've, you've got a small number of countries. Uh, first of all, the countries that produce nu nuclear weapons, which is, I think there's 10 maybe of them. 
uh, in the world. And then you can narrow that down even further to countries who would have an interest in killing this guy, and you're not left with very many. Um, Although it's so, not immediately clear who and what interest the Israelis have for. No, but maybe not the Israelis themselves, but the Mossad maybe, or mm-hmm. someone who would do it for a particular uh, strategic or propaganda purposes, which is, it seems to be that the result of it is Demonizing. implicate Russia. You know, and maybe leave it as a, as a signature. Maybe a, sometimes they like to leave little markers or signatures on their on their activities. You know, so I mean, let people chew on the idea that Arafat, yes, Arafat was killed with plumbing poisoning, and, and then Litvinenko just um, I think two years later was killed by it as well. But everything in the media says it was Russia. Um, but there's apparently. Um, a tape made in November 2005 um, where Litvinenko claims that uh, says all these things about Putin and specifically they're talking now about uh, Putin having had a good relationship with one of the world's most dangerous terrorists uh, specifically Semyon Mogilevich who is a, a Ukrainian crime boss who, who was on the FBI's most wanted list and whom Mr. Litvinenko believed was selling weapons to Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. So if you look into this guy, Simeon Mog- Mogilevich, he's Jewish. He's, he's like the Jewish boss of boss. He's the big kahuna boss, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's such a sordid story if you look into his background of what's available. Uh, he does deals with everybody. He's based in Ukraine, and he was he was being he was friends with everybody basically. Like Ukraine, Ukraine, they try and present the the image of Ukraine as being very much divided between you know pro and and anti-Russian, pro EU, pro West, and anti-Russian groups. All of them were in it together up until basically last year, up until 2013. They were all working with each other, you know. All the people you think are, are enemies of each other now in Ukraine, they were all friends, you know. The ousted president, Yanukovych, uh, uh, and his, the previous Orange Revolution guy in 2004, uh, Yushchenko, and the uh, oil princess, Timoshenko. I mean, they're all just working it with anybody they can get their hands on, you know. Uh, and all it's all between the, these political, these politicians and and the corporate bigwigs of, you know, of various state industries and stuff. I mean, it's such a viper's nest amongst them all, and none of them have any loyalties whatsoever. So to try and turn around and, and, and draw a line and say these ones are have always been pro-West and these ones have always been pro-Russia is just ridiculous. You know? yeah. It's not that way even today. No, they've all got dealings with MI6 going way back. Um, and, of course, directly with Israel. I mean, I've written about it. I think... Ukraine and Israel, Ukraine is like a kind of, there are among many others, it's like a playground for Israeli gangsters. It's just, <laughs> they've got a long, dirty past. Going back to the foundation of both countries, in fact, um, I mean, the original so-called Zionist gateway was Odessa, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, ideologically, uh, militarily, the weapons that Irgun and the Stern Gang got that later became the Mossad. That all came from from Ukraine. Uh, it's not so much that it's endemic to Ukraine; it's more complex than that. But it's always been this kind of clearinghouse 
you know, through which everything runs. Yeah. It's a great place. Everyone understands you can get things done there. But they're trying to, yeah. So they're, I mean, there's this intimation now that this guy, uh, Litvinenko, you know, speaking from the grave, has implicated Putin as being friends with this Mogilevich, who was, who was friends with everybody because he was very influential and everybody looked to him. But he, he was uh, sending weapons to al-Qaeda, therefore Putin was indirectly exactly. sending weapons to al-Qaeda. Putin's actually a jihadi. You know, I mean, you're going to see... They're not going to get far with that. <laughs> what? Are you serious? I mean, the way people just are sucking this stuff up is... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, you know. Um, it's it's just horrendous, though. Um, I was listening to Killary at some do this week. Mm. She's asked, you know, coyly by the presenter in front of an audience. So, you know, you're thinking of running 2016. Oh, well, you know. Well, you see, gosh, if I, if I was Putin, it would be so easy. Because, you know, it's not like here. Here we have a process. Yeah, right. <laughs> a process that gives you Bush 1, Clinton, Bush 2, uh, basically a Clintonista, and then your next choice is a Bush 3 or Clinton 2. Yeah. We have a process here. She is so deluded, and she's such a witch. Seriously. I mean, she's a purebred psychopath, that woman. Uh, but then she's in the right position. I mean, she's top of the heap in, in the U.S., or at least overtly. <laughs> oh, God. Nightmares. That cackling laugh. Where's her broomstick? Actually, that's uncertain. That's, that's <laughs> no! Make it stop. Speaking of Ukraine... The borderlands, the wilderness between east and west. Uh, Brzezinski speaking this week. Last week it was Soros. Mm-hmm. This week Brzezinski. And he says, is the sum of his message, Putin is playing with fire in Europe, financing and arming a local rebellion as rich. Yeah, what's oh, wrong with that? Coming from you. That's exactly what you did for like ever. <laughs> the rules of the game. Yeah. Get over yourselves. Jeez, you know, only playing by your rules. And we're actually trying to be fair about it. So, you know, don't be so hypocritical. Just please, just stop the hypocrisy, you know, just once. And you can see where they'll get bogged down, though. I mean, if they try, oh, yeah. if they try they're trying to play it fairly. So they've got this successful rebellion going. And they've got them, you know, apparently very well marshaled. Too well marshaled because... Kiev is playing so dirty and making well, obviously trying to make them look bad. I mean, the latest attack is um, there's been some shelling in the city in Mariupol. Mortars, yeah. mortars are fired in, and obviously the Kiev goes, "Well, look, look, look at what your rebels just did." And the rebels are like, well, "But we had nothing within range." I mean, they gave the honest answer: we couldn't have fired it because. And anyway, why would we want to do that? We want <laughs> we want the people on our side. Um, but of course, it's just it, it, for once. This is an attack that is being covered in the Western media. Yeah. But in terms of neutrality, it's mortars landed in Mariupol today. Period. Many people killed. Period. But there's no indication as to who's doing it. Of course. Well, but and, it, and a lot of them subtly hinted at that uh, that it was the rebel. Right. Yeah. Well, that'll take on message for sure. Yeah. And the that's the only reason you're getting to hear about it. Yeah. So they want to expand. You know, they want to expand their territory and. Take as big a chunk of Eastern Ukraine as possible. Which is so probably they, true. Yeah, well, that's fair well, enough. 
So, but what they want to do, so so in terms of the the people in Mariupol who are maybe undecided, they try and convince them by yeah. blowing them up with mortars. Yeah, that's a really good strategy. But you know, but of course that's of course that's why they would do it because they're just crazed killers, just like those jihadis. You know, they don't have any proper strategy. They don't mind shooting themselves in the foot. They don't mind engaging in obviously self defeatist uh, attacks because that they're just crazy. I mean. That's the kind of people they're dealing with. That's, that's the narrative people yeah. are meant to believe. Listen to how this was reported in the British Telegraph. The rocket attacks came a day after the rebels rejected a peace deal and announced they were going on a multi-pronged offensive against the government in Kiev to vastly increase the territory. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The peace deal was broken when Kiev forces attacked a previously agreed area that was held by the rebels. And it was clear from, there's been video footage put up on YouTube. I think Harrison, the thought editor, has written about Onsot. Um, it was a suicidal mission. There was no way they were going to actually secure, uh, take any territory from the rebels. And sure enough, they, they easily defeated them. But it was such a dirty trick. They sacrificed a couple of battalions in order to be able to say, look, the rebels have broken the ceasefire. They had no intention of actually gaining anything military victory. Yeah, and this ceasefire signed in Minsk was signed when the rebels... This wasn't Minsk, this was... But yeah, it's an adjunct, it's based yeah, building on... The, the main ceasefire signed in Minsk was signed when the rebels' forces were having uh, victories after victories, and they agreed to, see, to sign the ceasefire. Meanwhile... And the Ukrainian forces signed this ceasefire not to get peace, but because they were losing. So during the ceasefire, they could rebuild their forces, organize themselves, get massive support from the West, of course, and then wage war, war with the increased forces. But, and it also, it also happened at a time, this recent attack, probably by the Kiev forces on Mariupol, to try and blame it on the, on the rebels. Um, it happened just as... Uh, Putin has recently said that he tried to uh, broker an agreement, Poroshenko, etc., to for a ceasefire and to try move their troops back out and away from civilian areas. Yes. And he said that they got no royal response about that. Well, the response was the attack. The response was the attack, yeah. exactly. So that's why the rebels then said, well, the hell with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, obviously, they, they, did, obviously. they did make such statements as, listen, it, uh, the... The Prime Minister, he's not officially recognized as but he's been voted Prime Minister, Zakharchenko, uh, was saying, you know, to local media and therefore was broadcast internationally, uh, Poroshenko, if you won't meet me here, I'll come closer if you like to Kiev. I can meet you in, say, this town. No problem with me. The, the implication, it was a funny way of saying, I, I can come closer to you if you like. That's all he meant by it, but it's been spun into, oh, oh, they've announced they're going to invade the rest, of Ukraine. the rest of Ukraine. And the day after the, the Ukrainian army shelled Mariupol, they removed the battery of mortars that were stationed on the hills just above the, the town, you know, uh -huh. in order to, to blame even more easily the rebels. Yeah. We, 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 have, proof. we have a clue from the recent article by Soros. He said, he gave a timeline. He said, we have until April 2015 to gain the upper hand here. He didn't even mean in strategically and militarily on the ground. He was worried that by then, after a certain cutoff, it will no longer be possible um, for us to, no, well not for us to claim victory. By then, it, it will be too self-evident that Putin has won the information war, that his peace stance will have won the victory. Mm. 
they need to crush the status as soon as possible. Yeah, it seems so, to be, so yeah. hence, when Putin makes an extra effort to say, well, everyone withdraw all artillery from the existing boundary between you, the, the Yukis either freak out or they're given orders. No, 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 no. This will cement the existing status quo, and the existing status quo is in our favor. So yep. do something suicidal. Just send in three battalions, and they will wipe that. Yeah, and the information war. They seem to be aware and desperate about this information war, as illustrated by the recent controversy concerning the treatment reserved to uh, RT in mainstream media. You probably went through this news. Oh, my God. Where it was equated well, in the same yeah. sentence with terrorist organizations. I, RT, but Russia TV, if a, a fair I, media, probably uh, more objective than uh, the ones who are criticizing yeah. RT, was equated yeah. to organizations. It's been, it's, it's been fairly well condemned, even in the West. But it, it, actually, it's consistent. It makes sense. Think about it. Obama gets up before the UN late last year and lists the three major threats to U.S. hegemony, basically. Number one, ISIS. The second threat was Russia. Of course, ISIS, RT is Russia, it's war. It's consistent, right? From a psychopathic point of view. Of course, people are naturally going, hang on a minute, you can't say that a news organization <clears throat> is equivalent to what ISIS is doing. Mm-hmm. But it is actually logically consistent. From their point like of view, it is. Oh, it's, it's an enemy. A threat, yeah. It is an enemy. It is a major threat. Because, because, it's a that is true. because if you lose a propaganda war, you've lost a real war. It's essential. So, um, yeah. Just, just one last thing on Mariupol. We're, just before we came on, there was some uh, local media footage, uh, the immediate aftermath of the attacks. Uh, you should probably check it out. I think it's going to be on Stockton. And there's a camera news crew and, and the reporter lady sticks her camera in front of some mm. guy wearing khaki and he's armed with a machine gun uh, to get a comment out of people are running around they're trying to security area or whatever get an assessment of what just happened and the guy says in English with a clear English accent get that camera away from me bitch no he didn't say bitch did he? I, don't think I so. think he did no but the point is that he he was speaking yeah, with a perfect another, British accent. Well, it wasn't that that first one where he says that, where he's covering his face. That wasn't uh, a very clear. It was sounded a bit English, but it sounded to me like it could have been someone who a non-native English speaker who had learned uh, English in England, for example. Why but would he respond to her in English? Well, exactly, because that's the only language he doesn't know Ukrainian or Russian. Oh, he's not that's, from Ukraine. No, obviously, obviously he's not from Ukraine. But the the other thing is there's a there's one there's a video. In that report, there's a video just below that of another guy speaking. He definitely has an English accent. He said something like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine, that's fine. And he's got a very clear English accent. So uh, he's not a... Most illogical. Most illogical. Most logical, uh, actually. But, um, yeah. yeah, so, well, I mean, you know, hypocrisy and... Do as I say, not as I do, is part of the course. These people just lie all the time, you know. I mean, Russia's invading Ukraine. We're not invading Ukraine. The, op- the truth is exactly the opposite, really, you know. Russia is obviously giving a lot of support, military support, to Ukrainian rebels, but it's, to- it's in- totally uh, entitled to do that. Um, and But then, as is, uh, you know, the West, you know, Polish... Polish, uh, you know, soldiers are entitled to uh, help the Kiev government. You know, I mean, that's the rules of the game. You're allowed to do it. Let's just stop this whining and crying and pointing the finger. You know, I mean, people know, or at least people should know, 
the way these things operate, and you know, rebels in eastern Ukraine are going to be supported by Russia, and they should be. Uh, the Kiev military is going to be supported by its friends in the U.S. and the EU. And fair enough if they want to do that, you know. But let's just be honest about it all, you know. But the problem is when it comes down to honesty, if you really take honesty too far, uh, the average person in the street will get a very clear understanding of kind of who's in the right and who's in the wrong here, you know. If you use the values of the West and apply them to the situation, you have freedom and democracy. Well, people in Eastern Ukraine are entitled to their freedom and democracy. People are actually allowed to unilaterally declare independence in, in a country that happened in um, in Serbia. And the UN sanctions it and everybody's happy about it. So the same thing applies in Ukraine. You know, and if if anybody in if, if any um, if anybody in when Serbia declared independence, if it had been attacked by its neighbours, UN and the US and everybody would have been up in arms and all over it and Kosovo. terrible sorry, okay. Kosovo, yeah. Okay. Would have been uh, condemning it. So I mean it's just double double standards and hypocrisy is the rule. Mm. And people just need to get used to that, but also, you know, stand it so when you're listening to the news pretty much turn everything on its head. Here's another spectacular one from Poroshenko. So this week is the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz uh, by the Russian Soviets. And this guy is there <laughs> repeating what Yats said recently about how uh, insisting that you, in fact he, he said that Ukraine liberated Auschwitz. <laughs> this is the same Ukraine and these guys are the direct ideological slash in some cases literally the grandkids of the Ukrainian SS that saw to it that as many Jews as possible from Ukraine were shipped to Auschwitz. It's not such an egregious uh, revision of history as it, as it seems because that Russian, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the battalion or regiment or whatever it was that first arrived in Auschwitz they were made up of uh, nationals in the Russian Red Army uh, from all over the Soviet Union, including Ukraine. So there were some Ukrainians, uh, although there were Soviet Russians at the time, uh, amongst the people who liberated Auschwitz. But for him then to turn around and try and separate it out, you know, 70 years later, separate it out and say, no, these are Ukrainians. No, they weren't then. They were all Soviet Russians. For good or bad, and, and there were plenty of other uh, <clears throat> nationals from within the Soviet Union who were in, within that army. Who are, so he's, he's insulting uh, at the t- he's, he's insulting the the Soviet Russians or people who saw themselves the soldiers who saw themselves as Soviet Russians, and he's also so, insulting the other nationalities that were within the Red Army by limiting limiting it to uh, it was Ukrainians. It's just a pathological, stupid comment to make, you know. It's and it's highly opportunistic because Poroshenko, whose government regime is a neo-Nazi or includes some neo-Nazi individuals, for him to go to Auschwitz and celebrate the liberation of his SS uh, head camp, concentration camps, extermination camp, that Russian forces is a total schizophrenia. But it's, it's the same for this neo-Nazi leader Poroshenko to be demonstrating in the streets of Paris yes. against uh, Charlie Hebdo. But, the, but, but 
it's very interesting because it shines a light on or it exposes how these people think and the values that they adhere to, which is none at all. They don't adhere to, you know, anti-Nazism or democracy or freedom of democracy. These are all just catchwords, catchphrases that they use. These people, and I'm talking about the political elite of this world, of this world <clears throat> do not adhere to any ideology. They just mm. talk about it because it serves their interest. But when it comes down to it, they're happy to be Nazis, happy to be commies, happy to be capitalists, whatever. It doesn't matter to be Trotskyists, you know, Marxists, Leninists, whatever. It does not matter to them. Anarcho-syndicalists. Anarcho-syndicalists. They yeah. can be whatever they want to be. And when they say stuff like that or when they go along to these, when you have people who are, on the one hand, openly supporting Nazis, and on the other hand, going to a, a ceremony in, in Auschwitz, it shows that they don't care about those, those yeah. ideologies mean nothing to them. It means nothing, and in addition, since the only objective is power, greed, control, they will use and subvert and make those words in ism even worse. Yeah. That's a penology in action. Yeah. There's other interesting uh, events that are a bit... Um, the anomalous. Uh, there was a huge power failure in Pakistan. Again, that caused a blackout, leaving eighty percent of the country without electricity. Eighty percent of the country—that's one hundred and eighty million. It's a big country. One hundred and eighty million people uh, had no power for. I think it was for um, for for quite a long time. For eight hours. Um. Yeah. It left 140 million people without power. Now, they, this happened before last... It might have happened last year, but it definitely happened in uh, in 2013. There was a story from 2013 where... Bangladesh. A black, <coughs> a black, <coughs> blackout leaves the entire, the entire country in 2013 without power for two hours. In 2013, they said there's a breakdown uh, <coughs> in, um, you know, some of the equipment... Uh, I don't know. They said there was a malfunction at a plant in the country's uh, southwest, and uh, they put pressure on all the other major power-producing systems, which all stopped working and stuff. You know, uh, but you know, I'm wondering if this wasn't some other electromagnetic kind of uh, anomaly or <clears throat> something else going on, because <laughs> they said uh, in this one, this more recent one, which happened just yesterday, I think, uh, they said at it was an attack by jihadis. Well, that makes me think of the whole that they might have jerry-rigged the power systems of countries. They, you know, well, it's kind of interesting. Would like to get back in line? Yeah, well, I don't know. I think it it may be an example of uh, of the planet kind of Natural. messing with um, with the natural blowback extremely. Yeah extremely vulnerable, I think, uh, particularly in certain countries, maybe it's more vulnerable than others, but um, maybe not, maybe it, it would happen in Europe, it just ha- happens in, in Pakistan uh, the past few times, and uh, now, once, it hap- once it's happened once or twice, uh, they eventually start saying, oh, that was a mili- they were militants, Islamic militants mm-hmm. did that, you know, so it's the whole, um, it's it's similar to this, uh, the Klub quote, uh, the Klub. Yeah, about uh, uh, about the World War. Cel- well, celestial, celestial intentions being needed to hide. Uh, no, about cold, cold War intentions. Yes, Cold War intentions. 
Cold War intention is being needed to hide celestial intention. Yeah. So uh, that's changed now to yeah. uh, Islamic or Muslim jihadi intentions being used well, to hide uh, celestial or what well, is the new environment, Earth environment before. We, we, it's been a suggestion before that Al Qaeda was responsible for massive fire, forest fires right, in yeah. Colorado. Yeah. We've seen uh, uh, Al Qaeda being trotted out as responsible for a massive explosion in the middle of a forest in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. Right, that was yeah, that was a meteorite for sure. Yeah, yeah, and what is interesting, what is ironic actually, is you have this divorce discussion where Kaspersky and others talk about activists ready to uh, bring down the grid to hacking. And at the same time, you have celestial attention that may lead to the same result. So you're wondering, is it where the limit of the, you create your own reality paradigm is? Or is it actually priming the population to provide it with a human explanation, terrorism, World War Three, in order to disguise events upon which the elites have absolutely no power. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's open. Or maybe both are going at different levels. Indeed, they're planning to bring down the grid in order to create a false flag and to control the Internet. But at the same time, at the cosmic level, from uh, the cosmic factor might lead to the same result. So, it, it, it doesn't take much priming from, from anyone in power to get people themselves to provoke the suggestion that, oh, somebody out there did this to us. Because people are so naturally, um, they think the universe actually revolves around them. They're so naturally egocentric that it's all, this is why things like man-made global warming have taken root like they have. Because yeah. human being, our condition is such that we really do think when you look everything at, is revolves around. Yeah, talking about, talking about you, you just say man-made global warming. Man bear pig. Man bear pig. Uh, yeah, there's crazy snow coming to the U.S. again. Last Friday, a snowstorm brought record snowfall to parts of the Texas Panhandle, which was uh, kind of confused a lot of people that uh, the just this was on so last last Friday record snowfall and just a few days previously they were having 70 degree weather. Yeah, so people were like, what's a mild going, winter. Isn't it? What's going on? Um, and then there's another New England is being threatened by a historic snowstorm with possible significant snow conditions. This is a game because that area of the East Coast was uh, was deluged there uh, just late last year with in some places up to... Uh, sounds like a big wave. Chudabinsk. A wave, that's, that's a a, a wave of huh? snow. Um, yeah, they some places got up to like eight feet of snow. Yeah, it's, it's getting up there, you know. I mean, um, the accumulations people are seeing in places where you usually get just you know relatively small amount of snow. It's starting to increase. I mean, we may see at some point in the near future, you know, in the next few years, maybe um, we might see. Uh, it's a yeah. much much expected. Uh, what is it? Uh, Hundred feet of snow or something? You know, uh, yeah. or well, for the moment, we're meters, meters and meters and meters. People are being toyed with because November. In November last year, you had the record greatest snow cover extent for the entire Northern Hemisphere since satellite records began in 1972. And that, so a large part of that's over Eurasia, especially Russia. But since then, Russia's had like the mildest winter in a decade. 
So it's coming and going, it's coming and going. Yeah, and look, having a peak, a spike like that, it can be just uh, evidence or suggest more chaotic patterns. But the issue that this record you mentioned came after the winter 2010 record. In November 2010, you already had the highest snow cover rate for Northern Hemisphere this time. So almost every year, you break records that come back further and further into the past, so that are higher and higher, unusual and more and more unusual, unusual weather phenomena, which just not only increase chaos level, but also the increase intensity, you know, a, a trend. So I think we'll uh, leave it there this week, folks. Um, I'll just leave you with a story as well that you should all remember, which is that uh, there's been a recent study showing that... Um, the more, the better people know the Bible, the worse they do in college. So uh, just uh, you should think about that one. And don't study the Bible. Or don't go to, to, to college. Or don't go to college. Pick one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, just read Todd. All right. And that's the last word from uh, our sound man, Tim. Sound Tim. Tim, it's sound man, T. Anyway, uh, yeah, so thanks to our listeners and to our chatters. And we will be back next week with um, another show. Probably on a similar topic. We might have a guest one of these weeks. Might, maybe next week, actually, but we'll let you know. Until then, bye-bye. And bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Have a good week.